Good to see you guys this morning. For the last several weeks, um, as a staff, uh, in our weekly staff meetings, we've been taking some time to go through material around emotionally healthy spirituality. Um, and in particular, what emotionally healthy spirituality has to do or how it impacts the relationships we have with other people. Um, it's been really good. And like, like two or three weeks ago, the actual title of the unit that we spent time on as a staff was, was this, Stop Mind Reading and Start Clarifying Expectations. I mean, it could have been, yes, it, it could have been an entire class. Um, <laughs> And considering the amount of frustration, disappointment, and confusion that exists in our relationships simply because we try to assume we know what other people think and we don't spend time trying to clarify our expectations with and of one another. Uh, and so this morning, in the spirit of what we have been learning as a staff about emotionally healthy spirituality, I just want to kind of carry the essence of that concept into the beginning of our time together this morning as we inch our way into this series on the first three chapters of Genesis and I want to carry it forward here by clarifying two expectations, or at least laying a couple of foundational expectations for us to have of each other as we go through these chapters. And, and one expectation has to do with how we're going to relate to the Scriptures, kind of the interpretive strategy, the way we're going to approach the Scriptures. And the other expectation has to do with the way that we're going to have to relate to one another as we do it. All right? So first one how we relate to the scriptures themselves and the interpretive posture we take on the scriptures when we come to it. Uh, I want to be very clear that in the next several weeks, however long we're in these first three chapters, do not come with the expectation that this morning is going to be Robert's weekly hot take on the culture from Genesis, all right? Just be clear. I just want to be very clear, right? There are going to be times when we're going to deal with things that are on the surface of the way that we live and the conversations we're having. But that is not the reason why we're doing what we're doing or the strategy that we're taking. See, when you come to the text, there are, there are three primary strategies you can take, especially with Old Testament texts. The first one is called the thematic strategy. That's the one that most of the evangelical world, most of the church like, like us in our day and time is most familiar with. Scholars will talk about the thematic strategy being like a mirror, taking the scripture like a mirror to reflect on your contemporary situation and your contemporary circumstances. And that's how most of us are familiar with coming to the Bible, in particular, these, these Old Testament texts. And in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus and the New Testament writers do it fairly often. What does the writing of the Old Testament have to say about what they were going through? It's okay. And so we're going to do that some. The challenge with living in this thematic strategy and approach to the text in particular is that it misses the fact that the text as God inspired it and Moses wrote it for the generation going into the land has its own priorities. There is an original audience for which it was written. And that audience and that writing had a priority. And the thematic approach from us tends to miss the original priorities that were intended in the writing. You forget that sometimes. And we often find ourselves trying to read different themes into the story of the text. So we're going to have to be careful. We're going to do it some because it's a valid way to interpret and approach the scriptures because it does reflect back on us in our lives. But it's not the only thing. The other way that we tend to approach texts like this is known as the historical strategy. 
And the historical strategy doesn't treat the text like a mirror that reflects. It, It treats it more like a window through which you look through. And you can trace God's activity from where we are, the story of creation, and then in the book of Genesis, all the way through Joseph into his descendants. And what the historical interpretation strategy does is it tries to focus on what God did through different periods of time. And again, it's very significant. It's useful. We're going to be doing it some, even this morning some. But like the thematic strategy, it tends to often miss the original significance that God intended for the original audience, which is very important to understanding what was actually written. Which gives us the third strategy, which is known as the literary strategy. And as one Old Testament professor said, it's not a mirror that reflects back or a window we look through, but it's more like a portrait. He said a literary work of art designed to impact its original audience in particular ways. And so in one way or another, every theme that we'll think about that will be reflected back upon and every historical record that we'll walk through was designed to accomplish this original goal. And so we are going to be moving in and out of all three strategies at various times and opportunities. So if you are coming with the expectation, again, that this is going to be the weekly hot take on our world from Genesis, you might be disappointed sometimes. And the same disappointment may exist for those of you that don't want to hear anything about what the Bible has to say about the life we live and the world that we're in, okay? So that's the expectation one, right? How we're going to come at the text. But that gets us to the other one, which probably is a little more crucial, and that's how we're going to relate to one another as we go through it. The expectation is as we go through these chapters and things are reflected from the scriptures back to us, we do look to see what God intended for his people as he wrote it, as he inspired these things. It is going to require that you and I have patience and humility and charity with one another. We are going to find ourselves over and over again confronting issues that Christians have debated and landed in different places on for centuries. In his book, A Gentle Answer, Scott Sauls said the whole idea of being for something has gone out of style. Instead, we prefer to speak about and preach about an angry gospel about whatever we've decided to stand against. And we're going to be, have to be very careful with how we relate to one another in these things. How do we do that in the presence of disagreement? And the way we're going to have to go about doing that is remembering something that we spent some time on, if you were with us at all, back when we were going through Paul's letter to Timothy, and that's the idea of theological triage. It's an old idea, but in the last year, um, uh, Gavin Ortland wrote a book, we talked about it through that series, called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and it's trying to understand rightly how we understand and respond to the necessity and the urgency of different theological ideas. He puts them in three categories or orders or ranks, and and generally, historically, in talking about this, that's how it works. There are first rank issues, first order theological issues, and, and these are doctrines and theological issues that you cannot deny and still call yourself a Christian. You you cannot believe less than these things, right? These things have been summed up for centuries in creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And when it comes to first order issues or first rank issues, they they require the church to have courage and conviction to live and speak on. In fact, these are the 
issues, the doctrines of the Bible, the doctrines of theology, the church throughout history has been willing to die for. That's what a first-rank issue is, the nature and character of God, uh, the nature and character of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. These are first-rank issues. But then we come to second-rank issues. These things are urgent to the church, but not necessarily essential to the gospel. They're urgent to the church. They have urgency and impact on how the church orders herself, how the church functions. But these are not things that are essential to a saving faith in Christ. not essential to the gospel. They're very important and very urgent. These are the kinds of doctrines and issues that denominations and associations and networks and different groups begin to define the contours of their association around. Things that impact the way the church functions together. Doctrines and ideas that, while they are not salvific in themselves, in a local church like ours, deep disagreement on them might make unity difficult. Because they're very important and and essential to the way the church functions. And in relation to these second-order issues, we need wisdom and balance, because we're going to have to navigate different practical and relational issues with, with nuance. And then you come to third-rank issues, right? We're going down the line. Third-rank issues are important issues to Christian theology for sure, but they're not essential to the gospel and not necessarily even urgent for the church. They're important, and in our relationships together, we're going to need patience and resilience, and at the same time, a humility that refuses to fight and divide over these things. Uh, one New Testament professor who, who'd been talking about this for a long time, he actually takes this third rank and splits it into two. He has, he has four. And he says the distinction between these two in this third rank are there are certain topics, certain doctrines, certain theological concepts that within the church, it's healthy that we debate about. You would debate for your understanding of these things, but even lower than that, there are some doctrines and theological concepts that you're just going to have to decide for on your own and live your life, right? That's just what they are. So there are things the church has historically been willing to die for, things the church tends to separate, divide in healthy ways over to live out the urgency of the gospel, things that as individual Christians we're going to have to debate about and decide on. And as you and I begin this journey in the first three chapters of Genesis, I just want you to know from the jump that the majority of the stickiest things we're going to talk about fall under the second and third rank issue. They're not really first rank issues. And so what that means is that some of us who are a little hair triggered on wanting to make everything a first rank issue, we're going to have to learn humility and patience and charity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to be a challenge. But in that same book, A Gentle Answer, that Scott Sauls wrote, he reminds the church that as Jesus befriends us as sinners, reforms the Pharisee inside of us, and disarms the cynic in our heart, we find him not only an example, but the transformative resource that can inspire and empower gentleness in us. And because Jesus has covered all of our offenses, we can be among the least offensive and easily offended people in the world. Wouldn't that be amazing? If the church was known to be the least offensive and easily offended people in the world. 
So I want you to know from the beginning, with an expectation, we're not going to solve these issues that have been around for centuries. But by God's grace, they can become a means of Him making us more and more like Christ in the way that we relate and respond to one another in them. I mean, I was reminded of a story when I was living back in Nashville. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with a theologian named R.C. Sproul kind of a stalwart of the church, of the Reformed faith and the Reformed understanding of salvation and theology, passed away a couple of years ago. He had come to Nashville to do a a series on a weekend, a Friday through a Sunday at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. It's a big church in Nashville. He came and he taught on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then did two sessions of Q&A, open mic Q&A. And in the Q&A, someone walked up and asked Dr. Sproul, do you believe that you'll see Billy Graham in heaven? Now, this is an intramural question in the church because Billy Graham did not share the same Reformed understanding of salvation that R.C. Sproul did. And so this person asked him, do you think you'll see him in heaven? The place is packed. Christ Presbyterian Church seats about 2,500 people. The place is packed. And he took a moment before he answered. And then he simply said, no, I don't. And I wish I was there. I would have loved to like heard the audible noise. This is about Billy Graham, right? And he said, no. And he said, Billy will be so close to the throne of God, and I'll be so far in the back, I won't even get a glimpse of him. (laughs) Friends, that's humility and charity and patience. That's what makes us the least offensive and least easily offended people. That's what's going to be required of us as we go through these things. So hopefully there's some clarity as to what to expect and how we're going to approach the text and how in the midst of this, we need to be expected to approach and relate to one another as we go through it. So now we're going to jump into God's word and we'll get no further really than the first verse of Genesis chapter one. But I will read the first two verses just to make you feel good. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Speaking of triage and first order issues, the the oldest creed in the Christian church is the Apostles' Creed. For centuries, it has defined the first rank or first order issues of the church. You can believe nothing less than what's in the creed and call yourself a Christian. And the creed starts off this way. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It's a first order issue. See, more than just the beginning to the story, Genesis chapter 1, and in particular, what we'll discover in the first couple of verses, God lays out for us bedrock foundational truths on which our hope and faith are constructed and rooted and grounded. And so it would be a travesty for, for us to move too quickly past these things. And so this morning, in the time we have left, I just want us to consider what's actually there. What in the very beginning here is God in his grace exposing us to? And we're just going to consider the words that are there and what they happen to be saying. 
So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now I hope it doesn't come as a surprise to you that God himself is the subject of the very first sentence in the scriptures. You can't go too quickly past that because if we miss that, we're going to miss everything. Understanding him as the subject begins to set the expectations for us to have a right understanding of our relationship to him. So so be very careful as you read it that you read what's actually there. It doesn't say, in the beginning, you. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God created you. He is the subject of the story. In fact, if you read through the first chapter, and we'll be getting into it in more detail in the coming weeks, God dominates this chapter in every single way. 35 times in just as many verses, the name of God is repeated. It's as though at the very beginning, Moses is constantly pressing in on those who would hear and those who would read that God is the central focus. And if he's the central focus, what is it that we begin to learn about him from what's being said right here? So when we read Genesis 1-1 and we confess as a church that we believe in God the Father Almighty, When we say that, almighty is a word that is used to try to capture all the fullness of the characteristics and the attributes that make God, God. And so what is it we're confessing to believe and what is it about him that we can begin to see as we go through the beginning of the story? We're just going to look at the words and try to figure it out. So in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God already was That's what it's being said. In other words, when the world began, God was already there. And as the testimony of Scripture begins to unfold, according to the Bible, God is the only one that has no beginning. Theologians will call this the eternality of God, his eternalness. That he and he alone is the only one who has no beginning and therefore has no end. And if God has no beginning, that means that everything that comes into existence is grounded in God. It finds in him its origin and its purpose and its meaning. Its being begins in him. In the beginning, God. And then this God created. Big word. He created the heavens and the earth. Now with him being the only uncreated reality, that means that he created all things that came into existence out of nothing. Because he was the only uncreated eternal thing. You might have, if you've taken a class on the Bible, you you might have heard the Latin phrase ex nihilio. It means out of nothing. That's what we're talking about here. And when it says that in the beginning, God created, you're beginning to be exposed in the biblical story to the unfathomable power of God. What theologians would call the omnipotence of God, the omnipower of God. And this reality would have stood in bold contrast to every other creation story, every other big story that Moses and the generations would have been confronted with in their day. 
they would have heard stories that would have said that there were elements that existed with the other gods in the very beginning of time that became what we know to be as creation and the earth and the world around us. Or all that we are and all that we see in the world around us is just a product of, of war and violence between different gods. And God's people would have come to his word and heard his story that in the beginning, God... And he and he alone created. In the beginning he was, and he and he alone created. Which is why the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen, what you can see, was not made out of things that are visible. Because there was nothing else that existed with him. He and he alone. Nothing existed alongside of God. Not only in existence, but therefore nothing existed alongside of God in authority. This is all what is implied in the beginning of the story that people would have been hearing in relation to their world. As you read through the beginnings of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, you begin to see that everything that God called for came to be because he's the authoritative one. It's his authority at work. I mean, read through it. Some of you might be familiar with the, the, the creation story in Genesis 1, even if you, if you didn't grow up in the church or, or you're not super familiar with the Bible. You're probably familiar with the story. And as you go through and read it, you'll see that over and over and over again, everything that God does, he does by his word. It, it never says that God said, let there be light, and then God wandered off somewhere and made light and put it back in. No, he simply spoke. And it came into existence. In the beginning, God created. And these are massive realities. Because from Moses' day, from before Moses' day, to our day right now, there are competing stories and competing narratives that would want you to begin to believe that before creation, Nothing existed. Right? There was utter nothingness. Then something. Something came from nothing. And the story would impel you to look at that which exists, and you begin to logically use your reason to deduce that because there is something, there must have been something in the beginning and say, no, 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 no. There was nothing. And then everything came to be. There are other stories. These were similar stories in Moses' day. They're still here now. There's a similar story that would say, there wasn't nothingness. It wasn't like utter nothingness and then something. There were these impersonal things that were present. Like impersonal primary particles within which was the latent potential for everything that you and I see and experience now. They were there in the beginning. And we'll talk about these things in the weeks to come, but you realize that the movement from the utter impersonal to the personal is an absolute barrier for modern materialism and modern naturalism. 
And, and much to the chagrin of writers and philosophers and, and professors you may experience, they haven't figured all this out. And the burden to go from the nothing impersonal to everything with reason is a tall barrier. But these are the stories. But you begin the story as you open the scriptures and you're confronted with the fact that creation comes from God, belongs to God, is upheld by God. And as the story unfolds, we find out we'll one day give an account to God because he, the all-powerful, authoritative one, is sovereign. God Almighty. But, but here's what I want you to understand as well from the beginning of the story, right? I'm trying not to go too far out of the beginning, just the beginning of the story. His power that we see on display in creation in Genesis chapter 1 isn't raw, impersonal power as you and I tend to think about power. And you begin to get a glimpse of that and, and a hint of that in the very beginning when you read, in the beginning, God created the term used for God there is the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, that is a plural noun. It's plural. And you're beginning to get a hint of something that's going to be spoken about and referenced throughout the Bible about the nature of God. The three persons of the one true God. A Trinitarian reality is being whispered in the very beginning of the story, right? In verse 2, it's the Spirit of God that is hovering over the faces of the waters and the darkness of the deep. It's, it's God in his fullness and person that's going to say as we get to it, let us make him in our image and likeness. And what I want you to understand in relation to his character and his attributes and his nature, just from the beginning of what we can begin to uncover in the words, I want you to understand this. I have to jump a little bit forward, so I'm breaking my own rules. But in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, the prayer he prays for the church, for his disciples and those who would come after him, a prayer he prayed for us before he went to the cross. He speaks in a bit about his eternality with the Father and the Spirit, and that for all of eternity, they have been glorifying one another, glorying in one another, glorifying each other, living in a relationship together for all of eternity. So before creation, before anything that is came into existence, the Father, Son, and the Spirit had been enjoying, praising, honoring, and loving one another. That was the context of the personhood of God for all of eternity, which means the creative power we see displayed in Genesis chapter 1 is a power that comes out of the context of that relationship of love and praise and glory and honor within the Godhead. So when we talk about God and his love, we don't talk about God coming and, and being one who can love. We talk about it being part of his entire essence and being. Because before anything that is came into existence, God was enjoying and glorifying and loving in relationship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So the power that we see on display in creation is a power that comes out of that love that existed before anything that we see. Which means that begins to define the essential essence behind what we see and who we are. It's not this power on display and then love enters the story. That's not how it works. Love has existed for all of eternity. Out of that, we see the creative, omnipotent, sovereign, authoritative power of God. 
Now, why does that matter? Sounds kind of esoteric, right? That will begin to change your perspective on the way you understand why you're actually here. Right? The competing stories of our world would would want us to begin to believe and buy into the idea that the essence of why we're here is ultimately about power. If it's survival of the fittest and the strongest survive, if that's really what it's all about, if that's what's behind our understanding of why we're here and where we're going, then the way that you chew up and spit out everybody around you for your own purpose and your own gain makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. One naturalist I was reading this last week said, we are but selfish genes in a purposeless world. Matter becoming conscious, fighting a powerful delusion that we were actually here for a purpose. So it makes complete sense for you to chew people up and spit them out. For you to prioritize your work, your achievement, your power, your status over your family, over your friends, over anything. Because if power is ultimately what this whole thing is born out of and moving towards, then sure. But the Bible tells a completely different story. It wasn't power that love entered. It was a power that was born out of an eternal love that's always existed. So Orthodox theologian, Greek Orthodox theologian, Callistos Ware, he said the world was not created unintentionally or out of necessity. It was not automatic emanation or overflowing from God, but it was the consequence of divine decision to act in love. We should not think of God the manufacturer or God the craftsman, but of God the lover. By voluntary choice, God created the world in love. And this love, that's the context for the power we see on display, doesn't speak of of any kind of deficiency in God at all, right? God isn't deficient and therefore needing to do this to fulfill himself. Unlike creation, when we understand that for all of eternity, God is and God created, we realize in the very beginning that God is not dependent in any way, shape, or fashion on creation, on anything. He didn't need to create us because he was lacking in any way. I love how, how Peter Jones, he's a New Testament scholar, He said, God didn't bring the world into being so that he could be loved or love as if there was something lacking in him at all, or he was in a state of being needful of something else outside of himself in order to be complete. No, he is all sufficient in himself. And therefore, in his eternality and all sufficiency, God is distinct from all that he creates. He's distinct. Again, if you've been around the church at all growing up, you you may have heard it. Theologians call this the the transcendence of God. That he is utterly distinct from everything that he creates. Now again, there's nothing new under the sun. The ancient idea that God is everything and everything is God has become fashionable again in our day. It just carries different labels this time. It was popular in the days of Rome and Greece. It was rampant in the tribal cultures that Moses and the Israelites would have come across. It's still rampant in many of the tribal cultures around the world today. Technically, you may have come across the term pantheism, but that's what this is talking about. That God is everything and everything is God. And if that's the story and if that was the truth, then all you're responsible to do is try to figure out how to get in touch with that divine spark inside of you. Because you're God. The divine's there. 
You just have to figure out how to get back to that divine spark. Release that thing. Figure out that life force and get to it. That's not new. That's ancient. That's been around forever. It's got a cousin that's really popular too. That's the idea that God is in everything. He is equal and in everything. That's not pantheism. That's panentheism, right? And in that story, what's happening is ultimately the, the erosion of every essential distinctive that stands between creator and creation. The fundamental distinction on which our understanding of not only God, but ourselves and life itself is eroded. There is no distinction in that story between creator and creation. They're one. This is where things in our day, like extremely radical environmentalism come from. That tree's God in it. You can't do that, you know? This is rampant in a lot of different ideas and stories of the world, uh, like Wicca, and, and uh, we can get into, we'll get into other things. It's very real, and it's a story that's very alive. But as we'll see as we go through Genesis chapter 1, distinction is essential to understanding creation. But if you want to eliminate this foundational distinction between creator and creation, then that naturally leads to an erosion of distinction in everything else. There's an erosion of distinction in, in the way we understand morality and ethics. No longer can things be right or wrong or true or false. It's my idea or your idea. Because if there isn't a transcendent being by which we understand what is right, what is wrong, then we can't begin to evaluate things on those measures. The distinction is gone. There are all kinds of distinctions that God makes that are essential to understanding him and his world. But in the very beginning of the story, what we hear, what we see is that in the beginning, God created. Which means there's God and there's everything else. And as you read the story, and as we go through the story, what you'll begin to see are, are more attributes, invisible attributes, and natures and characteristics of God on display. You read the story and you'll be struck by the beauty that everything he makes is beautiful. And it's a reflection of his beauty and his creativity. It's why you and I can find ourselves now standing on the edge of an ocean or up on a mountain or, or looking at something in nature and, and with no predisposed idea to experience it, find ourselves in awe of what we're seeing because it's reflecting something of him. You see it as you go through the story, that everything he makes and the way that he does it is ordered. Again, the distinctives and the distinctions that he makes in creation are so vast, but they reflect something of his intention and his order. And that everything that he does and the way that he does it is always directed towards the ends that he desires. It's a reflection of his order and his nature. And not just that, we go through the story without even having to see it explicitly said, and you'll be struck as you go through the story of the wisdom reflected back in the created order. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that God knew how to do everything? I think we just take that for granted, right? Like, he's all wise. You know, yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Like, have you ever realized that the way that things function and the way they came into being, he understood and knew? 
It's a reflection of his wisdom. And as you read the story and understand that while he is self-sufficient and distinct from his creation, he, he's not uninvolved with his creation. He is the opposite of the uninvolved, disinterested God of, of the modern world, of what you might have heard in school called deism. God is actively involved with his creation. Theologians call this the imminence of God. The transcendence is his utter distinctiveness from his creation. His imminence is his activity with his creation. In the very beginning, from his spirit hovering over the face of the waters to walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, God is not a distant idea. He's not an it or a force or a principle. He's a personal he whom we can have a relationship with. who has revealed his character to us. Carl Henry was a great church statesman, and Henry said that God loves us so much that he forfeits his personal privacy that his, cre- that his creatures might know him deeply. God forfeits his personal privacy so that you and I might know him. And Paul told the church that what can be known about God is plain. Romans 1, what can be known as plain because he's made it plain. How did he make it plain? Paul said in Romans 1, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we're without excuse. This is what Paul says. But although creation leaves us without excuse, any excuse to refuse to believe in God as creator, we still require a special revelation to believe in him because of our sin. Our sin blinds our hearts from what should be clearly evident in the world around us. What should be so clearly seen in the created order around us. And the consequences of this are fatal and leave us living and spinning in futile speculation. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 1, here's what happens. We've exchanged the truth about God, right? And what was the truth in reference to? That he is the creator, God Almighty. What is plain to us in the world in which we live, we've exchanged the truth about him for a lie. And this lie has left a tragic legacy. Paul would say that in exchanging the truth for a lie, we ended up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Again, those distinctions have been blurred and eliminated, and the legacy continues on. So if you're, you're, you're my age, if you're, I'm 46, if you're my age or a little bit older, you're probably familiar with Carl Sagan and his show on the cosmos. And if you weren't a scientist, you weren't super interested in that stuff like I wasn't, you still do remember Carl Sagan in the cosmos saying very clearly that the cosmos is all there is, was, or ever will be. Period. The legacy of the exchange has left us with a story that says all there ever was, all there ever is, and all there ever will be is some kind of impersonal order. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't even know that you're here. 
And that's left us, it's left modern scientists with the burden of trying to figure out a way to make an impersonal universe somehow livable and meaningful. And we've got all kinds of stories of people trying to do that. But here's where I have great respect for the philosophers of our age, and that is not the way I'm wired. I'm not wired like that. My wife is wired like that. She asks these kinds of questions. I go read people who ask these kinds of questions. But at least they've been honest about it and have taken this story to its logical end. Bertrand Russell, he said, I'm going to go slow so you can catch it. That man, so he's making a statement, that man, which means you, is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. So you're the product of causes undiscernible and definable that had no understanding of the end they were headed to, right? That's what he's saying. That his origin, that your origin, growth, hope, and fear, loves, and beliefs, are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all of the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All of these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are so nearly certain that no philosophy on earth which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. They exchanged the truth for a lie. The lie has left a legacy. And the legacy is unyielding despair. That's the only logical option. Richard Dawkins, another famous atheist of our day, I appreciate the intellectual honesty, right? He was asked if his view of reality, much like Bertrand Russell's, left him depressed. It's a fair question, right? This is what Dawkins said. I don't feel depressed about it. But if somebody does, that's their problem. Maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic, but the universe is bleak, cold, and empty. So what? The legacy of the exchange The legacy of the lie, no matter what title the story goes under, is one that ends in unyielding despair, bleakness, coldness, emptiness, so what? But friends, the scriptures tell a very different story. From the very beginning, in the very first verse, God Almighty, eternal, all-powerful, authoritative, sovereign, transcendent, yet eminently personal, wise, beautiful, and loving, we'll come to see in the coming weeks, made you. You're not the result of a random accident. You were made by God Almighty, the same one who has made himself known. And he's made himself known not just in what he's created. That's not the extent to the revelation that he has made about his person. He has made himself known most 
clearly in his son, whose name is Jesus. Do you know that God understood that Adam and Eve bought the lie? That they believed that they could do just fine without God independently on their own. And that we find ourselves biting off the same thing. And do you know that God Almighty, all-powerful, all-authoritative, all-sovereign, all-wise, all-transcendent, knew this, and he chose to act. The same love that was the context for the power that brought forth creation. While we were still sinners, while we were choosing to believe the lie rather than the truth, while these stories were fighting to define our understanding of ourselves and our world, he came. He acted. This creator entered into his creation and he did so humbly in his son. He did it that not only would he be identified with us, that he would understand the same temptations that we have, but in his life on this earth, tempted in every way that we are to buy the lie, he never did. And he would go to the cross and suffer and die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. And here's the thing. He did this to save us from the eternal legacy of the lie. He did this to save us from the unyielding despair. Russell was right. That's what it is. And he did this to save us from the unyielding despair by dying for us. By paying the price that our sins deserved. And then by placing his spirit within us and promising one day to return to not only rescue his creation, but renew his creation so that it would no longer have any aspects of being bleak, cold. I love how one New Testament professor said it. He said, just as God took a barren wasteland and prepared it for our first parents, he will again prepare creation for his people. And rather than saying, so what? Rather than the unyielding despair, rather than saying, so what? To all of our hurt and disappointment and suffering and pain, God the Father Almighty has promised to wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is why the church for centuries has said, it can be nothing less than this, but I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what you and I are confessing. This is what you and I are proclaiming to believe as we respond to God's word each week as we receive communion together. So in just a moment, we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word and consider what God by his Holy Spirit might be stirring in your heart or, or beginning to lead you to respond to him in, in various ways. We're going to give you some time to reflect on that. But after that, if this is your confession, 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son. You're going to be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread remembering Jesus' body broken in your place for your sin, to dip it in a cup, remembering his blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you do that, with your whole body and your whole being, you are making that confession. You are proclaiming your confidence and your faith in God the Father Almighty and his Son. And you'll be invited to do that. And if you're here this morning and you would say that's not your confession, I just want you to understand we are glad that you are here. Stick with us in the coming weeks. I want you to know that just your presence here with us this morning is evidence and testimony to God the Father Almighty already being at work in you. So we're glad that you're here. And for those who could say, this is my confession, in a moment you'll be invited to come forward and respond. But we're going to give you a couple of moments to reflect. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll begin to respond. Father, we thank you this morning that for all the, in all the ways and the magnitude that you are other than us. You've chosen to reveal yourself to us in the most personal of ways. By being for us, we can never be for ourselves and paying a price for our sin that we can never pay. That we would know you. Not just information about you, but that we would know you as God the Father Almighty. Lord, we ask this morning by your Holy Spirit, through, the, through your word, that you would help us to see the fullness of your divine nature and invisible attributes, Lord, that we would not miss the magnitude of who you are and the depth of how you've loved. Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.